how Jason, those songs fit perfectly. It's good to see everyone. Uh, it's good to be back in Savannah with you all. Uh, the reason I look forward primarily to coming back to Savannah is <laughs> being back with everyone here. Um, and I just appreciate your patience while even I were in Indiana. Um, yeah, it's always just needfully um, encouraging and refreshing um, and reinvigorating to be with Eva's family there and the church there. Uh, we're able to have some very personal conversations with um, brethren there, uh, the elders of the church there, just really help hold our hands up. And all of that is just very needed and very encouraging. And we're, we're just very eager to be back here and be back to work here. Um, so we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 uh, for the lesson this morning. And this is going to be a part of uh, the year-long summer series that I'm going to be doing for this year. Um, for those of you who are visiting, every year I try to pick uh, a section of scripture or a book of the Bible that I feel like would just be really, really helpful uh, for the church here, something for us to kind of continuously focus on understanding better and applying through the year. And I try to think about that through the year leading into the next year. Um, and sometimes it can be difficult to kind of work out, you know, what exactly may be the most helpful thing. But fairly early on last year, I had thought about 2 Corinthians as 2024 sermon theme. And um, I've just been more and more pulled to that and, and seen more and more the value of doing that. Um, so I'm excited for the, the sermon series on this, this book of the Bible this year. Um, and for many reasons, but one of those is 2 Corinthians is, is my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, there's obviously... Uh, much utility and value to every book of the Bible. And there's particular books that I feel like we're all more drawn to. Uh, there's certainly a few books in the Bible I've studied more than, uh, more than others. But I don't think any book of the Bible has equipped me and helped me and changed me and formed me more than 2 Corinthians. Um, and I hope that becomes very evident as we study it. And the value of this book is because it's really so different than other books of the New Testament. It's a very personal letter where Paul just really opens his heart wide to the Corinthians. It's not so much a letter covering doctrine or even much application. And for that reason, 2 Corinthians, I think, tends to be underutilized, understudied, underappreciated, underapplied. Uh, and I think that's a shame. It, it is, again, a very different book of the Bible that can make it kind of challenging to figure out what to do with it. Uh, but to illustrate the value of 2 Corinthians, where Paul does, you know, write very personally and does open his heart in a very unique way. Uh, among brethren, there's been a couple older, very well-known brethren who have passed away recently. I don't know if um, all of you know the name Paul Earnhardt. I'm sure Brandon knows the name Paul Earnhardt, maybe Jason. Really well-known brother. Uh, he became very old. He had done lots of gospel meeting, written very helpful material, just very good brother, very, very good brother, very well known by many Christians. Uh, he passed away a month or two ago, and I read some brethren kind of talk about how much Paul Earnhardt had impacted them. And uh, what became apparent is there's something about an older example, someone who's just very mature in their faith, very loving, very humble-hearted, where being around someone who's just very mature in their faith can have an extremely profound impact on you. And something I noticed consistently was brethren not just talking about things that Paul Earnhardt did, but the heart that he had. 
and how convicting, how humbling, how encouraging his heart was. And that's 2 Corinthians. Uh, I think if we understand what to do with 2 Corinthians and see the value of Paul opening his heart, it has the power to impact us enormously. Paul kind of gets into the nitty-gritty of what makes him tick as an apostle. How is it he's able to live the life that he lives and not grow weary, not go to grow discouraged? How can he suffer so much and not just become embittered or lose hope or despair, but actually be more and more encouraged? How does he view people? How does he view struggles? How does he view helping the struggles of others? All of these things are, are tackled in such depth and are so helpful to see in 2 Corinthians. I would argue if we can apply 2 Corinthians, we can literally endure anything and actually grow in our faith and have joy. We can endure anything and grow and endure joy. And that's just a part of the utility of the letter. We'll talk about that as we go through the letter. But I want to tackle really quickly just some issues in the letter. So it seems implied that Paul actually wrote four letters to Corinth. We only have two. So 1 Corinthians 5, Paul mentions in the first letter that he had already written them a letter where he told them not to associate with the ungodly people. And he says, I did not mean in that letter that that meant the ungodly of the world or else he'd have to go out of the world. Anyway, he implies he had already written them a letter. We don't have that letter. And in 2 Corinthians, it seems implied that he also, between 1 and 2 Corinthians, had written them a much more frank, straightforward, brief letter to deal with some problems in the church, which they responded to well. Uh, and in 2 Corinthians, there's some good things that are happening in chapter 2 and chapter 7. He, re- he mentions that there's this growing zeal in the group. Uh, they had repented and ultimately responded properly to that very frank letter that he was worried they would not receive well. But although there's some good things happening, there's also still some extremely concerning things going on. And the issues in the church are no longer doctrinal problems like we see in 1 Corinthians. It's more attitude problems and pride. I want to show you where we see implications of that. Uh, In chapter 2, and again, I'm just going to kind of give you a tour and then we'll get back to chapter 1. So chapter 2, verse 12, or verse 17 rather, Paul makes a passive reference, and he makes a few passive references in the letter to things that are present problems. So he references a problem kind of passively, but as you get into the letter, you realize he's addressing passively something that is a problem. Chapter 2, verse 17, for we are not like many, many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some Letters of commendation to you or from you. So 2.17 especially, he mentions those who are peddling the word of God. And we'll see what that means as we continue to go through this. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. So similarly, he says, We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to boast of us or be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Chapter 10. Verse 2, deeper into the letter now. Chapter 10, verse 2, he says, But I beg that when I am present, I need not act so courageously with the confidence that I consider uh, to daringly use against some who consider us as if we walked according to the flesh. And then look down at verse 7. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. 
And then if you look at verse 12 of the same chapter again, chapter 12, and this is where he's pinpointing a little more clearly, there are, there are people in their group who are boasting in their appearance, who are arrogant. And a problem, as we'll see in these last chapters, very briefly, is the Corinthians are following and admiring these people who are very arrogant, who are even calling themselves apostles, and as a result of trying to win the Corinthians' allegiance, are undermining Paul and his example. So, uh, I'm sorry, I, I passed one in verse uh, 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10 of chapter 10 addresses this, For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters, for they say, and this is the arrogant people talking bad about Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is weak and his words contemptible. They're talking about Paul. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Look at chapter 11 now, a little further down in verse 3. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you, which you did not receive, or a different gospel which you did not accept, you bear this beautifully. And then look down uh, further in chapter 11, still verse 12. But what I am doing I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be found just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And if you look down at verse 18, he says in verse 18, Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you being so wise are bearing the foolish gladly. As in, again, some people in Corinth who are undermining Paul, undermining Paul's example, trying to win their allegiance through arrogant boasting, not through humility. Verse 20, For you bear it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we have been weak by comparison. And I'm sure the sarcasm of verse 21 jumps off the page. And then finally, chapter 12, 19 through 21, Paul at the end is very frank about what he thinks may potentially be going on, causing all of this behind the scenes. Verse 19, all this time you think we are defending ourselves to you. Paul talks a lot about himself in 2 Corinthians, and he makes clear here he's not trying to prove himself to them or defend himself to them. It's giving them an example to understand what maturity should really look like in the faith and what a servant of, the, of Christ really strives for and how they operate. 19 again. We speak in Christ in the sight of God, and all these things, beloved, are for your building up. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I might find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many who have sinned in the past and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. So again, there's good things going on at Corinth, and, and Paul in this letter is going to make the best out of those good things and try to encourage those good things as much as he can, but not without addressing that there are still at the same time some very concerning things that are going on in the church. How he addresses that, 
again, Paul brings up his own example, not because he's just trying to prove himself to them or defend defend himself to them, but so that they can understand what the heart of maturity in Christ really is meant to look like. And we will benefit greatly as well if we try to think about that personally and practically. So this is an outline of the letter. Really, every month is going to be a chapter except chapters 8 and 9. And throughout 2 Corinthians, one thing that Paul is bringing up in his, in his example is that this all relates to love and love taken to its proper mature extent. Love, when it's properly applied and understood, makes us servants like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 13, there's an irony. You know, they're analyzing Paul, they're scrutinizing him, they're even slandering him. And in chapter 13, he says, it's you that you need to analyze yourself. And so this letter equips us to kind of reflect on ourselves. You know, are we aligning with the kind of example, the kind of intentions, ambitions, and practical things we see Paul doing? So all of this is going to be about how Paul's example and the nature of this letter helps us grow in love. We're going to start in chapter 1 with seeing fundamentally the fellowship of love in chapter 1. I'm going to start reading verses 1 through 11 again, and we're just going to split this chapter, two sections, 1 through 11, and then verse 12 uh, through the end of the chapter. So verses 1 through 11, we'll go ahead and start here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. But whether we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, or whether we are comforted, it is for your comfort which is working in your perseverance in the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even to live. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, that we would not have confidence in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who rescued us from so great a peril of death and will rescue us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet rescue us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers on our behalf, so that thanks may be given on our behalf by many persons for the gracious gift bestowed on us through the prayers of many. So one of the fundamental aspects of fellowship we see here is suffering and comfort. I want you to think about how important this is for Paul to start this way. So kind of consider what we just talked about in the introduction. You know, the Corinthian church has some good things that are going on. And again, their issues are no longer doctrinal things like how to take the Lord's Supper, is there a resurrection, things like that. Um, But now it's more an attitude problem. So think about this. If the Corinthians are struggling with admiring people who are brazenly arrogant and actually undermining Paul and allowing Paul to be slandered by these arrogant people, Can you see how it would be so critical to emphasize things that cultivate humility and fellowship immediately? These two things, suffering and comfort. If we can learn how to have fellowship in suffering and comfort, that fundamentally crushes pride in our fellowship. We are not competing with each other. (laughs) 
We're not looking at each other competitively. And I want you to think about something Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 28. This is at the end of Jesus's life when he was about to be betrayed and crucified. And he, he commends his disciples here. I want you to think of all the things he could say to his disciples to commend them. You know, to try to encourage them before his death on, here's what's mattered so much to me about you. Is he going to tell them how much faith they've had in his teaching? Um, the great Bible discussions they've had? Luke 28, 22 says, Now you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I grant you a kingdom, just as my father granted one to me. What mattered the most to Jesus about his disciples? They were the ones who stood by him in all of his trials. That was the basis of their fellowship. And as they would listen and apply his teaching, as they would humble themselves, what was that doing? It was equipping them to stand by him in his trials. Our faith and our fellowship thrive as we suffer and find comfort in the Lord and in one another. For Jesus to say in Luke 22, you are those who stood by me in my trials. Now, obviously, Peter would deny him. The disciples would abandon him in just moments, really, after he said that. But besides that, before that, did it matter to Jesus that his disciples stood with him? Do you think that encouraged him? Did that deepen his love for them and give opportunity for their faith to be mutually deepened as they struggled and suffered together and learned to find mutual comfort in that fellowship? So our faith and our fellowship thrive as we suffer and find comfort in one another. And I want you to see this in verse 7, how humble this is. You see how Paul plugs his suffering into the suffering of the Corinthians? He says, Our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. So in practicality, do you think the suffering of the Corinthians could in any way compare to the suffering of the Apostle Paul? <laughs> Especially with chapter 11, if, if you're not aware, chapter 11, Paul really goes into detail about how much he has really suffered in his life for the gospel, in his ministry as an apostle. He talks about being beaten times without number, being shipwrecked multiple times, constantly in sleeplessness, constantly in hunger and thirst, constantly in danger from being robbed, constantly in danger from false brethren. You know, you read that and, you're, and you think, wow, this, this is a standard of suffering. I don't think anyone can possibly compare. And yet in verse 7, he says, you are sharing in our comfort. You know, Paul wasn't asserting himself as being superior to them. He doesn't bring up his suffering in chapter 11 to try to shame them. You know, Paul is, is saying, we are suffering in principle the same things for the same reasons. Because what Paul recognized is suffering bonds us together. There may be differences in maybe the mechanics of what specifically we are suffering, but ultimately, we suffer together, and the basis of our fellowship, in big part, fundamentally, is that we suffer together. And there's two absolutes that are emphasized here with suffering that are really critical. Notice back in verse 4. You know, God comforts us in all our affliction. And we are comforted in our affliction so that we can also comfort others with the same comfort with which we receive from the Lord himself. So that equips us to better serve others, to help comfort others. It helps mature our faith. It helps us have better fellowship with each other. It affects our attitude and our humility. You know, so a part of this that's so important is understanding that suffering always equips us and suffering always has purpose. And I think we all have a kind of struggle 
that takes us off guard, where we don't associate it with the Lord. We don't think that it's valuable. And I'll say this, that I think Satan works most effectively when we struggle chaotically, where we struggle aimlessly. And I want you to think in a very broad way about that, that whether that's marriage conflicts, personal insecurities, troubles at work even, temptations with sin, trying to deal with sin and overcome sin, relationship struggles beyond marriage, issues with your children and raising your children, whatever it is, suffering always relates us to Jesus. And it always has a purpose. We're the ones who struggle with having the discipline of realizing how valuable suffering is in our relationship to the Lord and how it equips us. And I think a struggle that we have sometimes is, well, I don't know what this is equipping me for. I don't know how this is going to be useful. I don't get the point. And notice in verse 4, that's not the point. We don't need to know how or why. In verse 4, we just need to know that God does do this. God always gives meaning to suffering. God says suffering always is equipping us to help and serve others. And so we don't need to know, well, who specifically is this going to help me comfort? Or what specific situation is this preparing me for? We don't need to worry about those things. We just need to think about the faithfulness of God and his character. That if I just focus on God and his faithfulness, then I can know in absolute certainty my suffering always has purpose and it's always equipping me. And then look back at verse 3. That God is a God of all comfort and mercy. You know, suffering and struggling puts us in, in tune with the reality of our humanity. God's mercy and comfort are our two greatest needs. But the reality is, in verse 9, if God can raise the dead, is there any problem too big for God? And I think there's so many things that we intellectually we know to be the case. I think we know that God is capable of comforting, comforting all kinds of suffering, helping us through all trial. So there's that thing I think we all know. But then when it comes down to the practicality of actually enduring a struggle or a trial, all of a sudden it's different. And actually remembering that God is able to comfort me in all my afflictions can be very, very difficult. And so in verse 3, God is the God of all comfort. And in verse 4, he comforts us in all of our afflictions, meaning God can deal with everything. And temptation, we should view the same way. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not let you suffer more than you can endure, but will provide a way of escape that you may endure it. So this doesn't happen in a worldly way. It doesn't happen in a way that meets our expectations. You know, the idea is we need to humble ourselves. We have to realize that God is faithful and that God is able to comfort us in all of our trials. How this has helped me, I've realized that if comfort is inevitable, then as I'm suffering, I can focus on that. <laughs> that God has reserved a point of comfort. Every problem has resolution. Everything that causes tension, tension can be resolved. And so God's methods work. And it encouraged me, if I just trust the Lord and continue to focus on his will, God's methods maximize comfort. God's methods protect peace and healing. It's Satan and the chaoticness and the darkness of Satan and losing patience, becoming angry, despairing. That's what furthers hurt, causes damage. That's what creates a mess that God then has to come back and clean up. 
It's God's ways that connect us and keep us plugged into his comfort, his healing, his deliverance. It's what keeps our minds open to his counsel. It's what keeps our hearts open to his healing and comfort. So if all suffering finds complete comfort through Christ, then all of God's methods help preserve our place in the realm within that comfort. But I think secondly, how this is very impactful in terms of practicality, when I suffer, then I can be sure that God is working towards comfort. So I'm not alone. You know, again, my suffering is not going to last forever. If there is a distinct point when God will bring comfort, where there will be resolution, I find it reassuring to know that God is working out comfort already. God has anticipated my trial before it came. God is working out solutions while I'm struggling with feeling overwhelmed, while I feel like I don't know what to do, while I feel like I'm being pushed to my limits. God is working out comfort. God is already preparing deliverance. So those two things seem at odds with each other. But I think Paul brings up in verses 8 through 11, they actually coincide together beautifully through our faith in Christ. So maturity in Christ then, we're going to see this with Paul's example, but in verses 8 through 11, we see this. We can have this wrong idea of what it means to be mature in Christ. You know, that being mature in your faith means you don't have problems. You don't have deep struggles, serious struggles that push you to your limits. You don't have tension. You don't have relationship tension. You don't have marriage problems. That maturity in Christ means you always know the right answer. You always know the wise thing to do. You always know how to solve every problem, and that's just not the case. Notice in verse 8, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was afflicted so excessively, he says he despaired even to live. Have you ever been so afflicted or suffered such severe anxiety and depression you literally wanted to die? Do you see how that makes you like the Apostle Paul in verse 8? That Paul the Apostle was so overwhelmed, he would rather have died. And then in verse 9, he says, this produced something good. What a blessing! Because this pushed him not to have confidence in himself, but instead to focus more and double down on God who raises the dead. What a blessing! And in verse 10, you know, Paul knows this idea that God is a God of all comfort from personal experience. He's not just saying something spiritual. Verse 10, he was rescued. God delivered him. He experienced comfort. And you see how that doubles down his certainty. He says twice, he will rescue us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet rescue us. He's willing to be redundant about this. Maturity in Christ is not an absence of struggles. You know, I think 2 Corinthians really challenges what we think about when we think about maturity. I think we think about maturity and faith as a Christian in a worldly way. That again, it's somebody who's always put together. They're always doing the right things. They never have any problems. But look at 2 Corinthians 4. Another aspect of this that I found very helpful is in verse 7. You know, maturity is not always knowing the right thing to do or knowing the right answer or even knowing what's going on. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of power will be of God and not from ourselves. In every way afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. I want you to look specifically at, back at verse 8 in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 8. You notice Paul says that he was perplexed, but not despairing. What does it mean to be perplexed? To be overwhelmed? To be confused? To not know the direction to go? To not know the decision that needs to be made? You know, to feel like you don't know how to solve this problem put before you, whether that's a personal problem or something with others? You know, maturity in Christ doesn't mean you always have the right answer to every problem. Paul says, not only was he burdened beyond his strength to the point where he would rather choose to die, but in chapter 4 he mentions that he's frequently perplexed. <laughs> maturity in Christ is not an absence of struggles. It is often the case. We are not closer to God than when we are struggling, when we feel like we're being pushed to our limit, when we're most tempted to be pushed to a point of despair, when we feel like we don't have any answers and we just don't know what to do and we feel like we're just lost in the darkness. Chapter 1, verse 9. These things humble us. You know, in chapter 12, Paul will talk about how he sent the Apostle Paul, God sent the Apostle Paul, a thorn in the flesh. And God appealed, Paul appealed to God three times to remove it. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. God deliberately caused Paul to suffer. And Paul mentions in chapter 12, that was so that he would be protected from pride. Humility is one of our greatest needs. And again, I think when we struggle, we too often think, I'm losing. You know, something's going wrong. Things are being taken away from me that I should have. You need to think differently. So maturity in Christ is not an absence of struggles. It's rather to embrace the value of struggling. To have this spiritual sense to realize that when I struggle, it's valuable. God is working. I'm not losing. I'm not diminishing. You know, I don't struggle because, oh, I'm just so immature. And brother so-and-so, they wouldn't struggle with something like this. Nonsense. Maturity in Christ is when you struggle to realize the value of whatever it is you may be struggling with or suffering with, to understand that it is equipping you that it connects you to Jesus. It connects you to God and that God is going to work it out for deliverance and comfort and equip you to better serve others. And notice in verse 11, Paul doesn't just privately suffer so that others think, well, Paul's got it all together, but secretly, behind the scenes, what Paul is hiding is he has these big, big struggles. No, verse 11, he invited them in their prayers for his struggles. He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this. You know, maturity in Christ is having the humility to invite people to pray for me in my struggles. Because if we think, well, that brother doesn't have those kind of struggles I do. Wow. Either someone's not being honest or I'm not seeing them in the right way. You know, I get that it can be hard and can take some courage to open up and say, hey, I really need your prayers because I am really struggling with this. But that is maturity, not immaturity. You know, if we think it's immature to be struggling to a point where you need to ask for help, again, we've got it backwards. And our, our view of maturity is not in its right place. And to take careful note of God's deliverances, and notice in verse 11 again, Paul says, thanks may be given by many persons for this gracious gift bestowed on us through the prayers of the many. Maturity is recognizing when God delivers and to give him thanks and praise when he does it. When, when tension is resolved, when you've seen that, 
marriage tension, tension with your kids, tension emotionally, something at work, again, whatever it might be, any struggle, any suffering, what do you do when that's gone? Are you just glad it's over with so you can move on? Do you just kind of say, well, I'm glad that's done and on with life? Or do you stop and say, God, thank you for delivering me. God, I praise you for comforting me. Thank you for being faithful. And I'll tell you, we miss opportunities for spiritual growth if we miss the comfort that God is providing us when we struggle. Thanking God for his deliverance fortifies our foundation. Thanking God for his deliverance gives his grace more opportunity to dig deeper into our hearts. For us to see again more clearly that the solution to our struggle isn't self-confidence. It's not seeking worldly solutions to what is ultimately a spiritual issue. It equips us to see how faithful God's way is, how important his counsel is, how much healing, how much goodness is in applying his word even when it's difficult. And it encourages us, it helps us to see things differently so that we don't panic and despair just because the world seems to be crumbling around us or our emotions seem to be failing us or things that give us a sense of security seem to have been taken away from us. When we take careful note of God's deliverances and we have the perceptiveness to thank him for his comfort and deliverance when we see we've experienced it, it protects our perspective the next time we go through difficulties. I'll just tell you one thing about how this has helped Eve and I. I think this is just true for everyone's marriage, but Eve and I have had a lot of conflict in our marriage. We've been through a lot of hard, tense conflicts in our relationship. And what really helps us now is we say, God has delivered us from every single conflict we've ever been in. God has never failed us. And you know what that does? That helps us calm down and take some breaths and realize we don't need to get angry We don't need to become impatient because that's not the solution. If God's always delivered us, if we've seen that, then we just need to be patient. And we need to work on just being kind to each other. And we don't need to panic and think everything's falling apart. I think that's a very practical value that comes from trying to take note of these times God is delivering us. Okay. Expectations and intentions. This next section can be kind of confusing. It's worded in a strange way, but the idea is this. Paul had communicated plans to visit Corinth, and he didn't go. He changed his plans. And what we're going to see here is that the arrogant people in the group were using this as, a, as an opportunity to slander Paul. And so, verse 12. For our boasting is this the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, as in, you know me. I'm not being two-faced with you. What you see is what you get. Verse 14, that we are your reason for boasting as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I attended it first to come to you so that you might twice receive grace or uh, you might receive grace twice. That is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, was I vacillating when I intended to do this? As in, was I making this plan dishonestly or deceptively? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but become, but has become yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. 
Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave the pledge of the Spirit in our hearts. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. Just some brief things to kind of work through what Paul is trying to say here. You know, again, in verse 12 and 13, Paul emphasizes he's been sincere with them. He's not hiding things from them maliciously. You know, he's not being two-faced. You know, again, what they read is what they get. He's just down the line, been completely genuine and honest. And verse 14, there's a weird statement, you know, that we are your reason for boasting as you also are ours. You know, Paul's just emphasizing they're important to him. You know, this isn't a one-sided relationship where Paul is their master and they are the servants. No, they are working together. They've been a huge encouragement to Paul, just as he's been to them. In chapter 6, he will say, you are in our hearts, both to live together and die together. So this misconception they have that this is one-sided, that Paul doesn't care about them, is totally wrong, and he's proven that to them. But Paul constantly is, is considering, well, what's best for their faith and for God's purpose in them? You know, that gets to the, the last part of 20 through 24, is what Paul is trying to consider is, what's best for the Corinthians? And if changing his plan seems best for their sake, he's going to change his plan. Not because they're not important to him, but because that seems to be the better thing for God's purpose and for the development of their faith. You know, and I can see how people could slander Paul saying, you know, he didn't show up because he just doesn't care about you. <laughs> he just can't trust Paul. He says one thing one moment, then all of a sudden he's doing something else. He's just not honest with you. He just can't predict what he's going to do because he just doesn't care enough to let you in on his decisions. No. Ironically, Paul made this decision for their spiritual benefit. And what do you think? Are we more like the Corinthians in this regard or more like Paul? You know, Satan, I think, here is able to work. That the brethren slandering Paul when he had actually been doing this for their benefit and actually because of his love for them, trying to work with them, Satan tries to plant secret, often unwarranted thoughts of slander to divide brethren. Maybe you're better than me, but I struggle with this and have struggled with this. And I think it's important just to be honest about that. That we have like a working machine in our mind where someone will do or say something or not do or not say something and our mind just begins assuming bad things. <laughs> you know, we feel offended when someone didn't even mean something or mean to imply something. Our mind just starts working. And this this mechanism can start rolling where one thought begins stacking on, an, on another and all of a sudden now you just think about this person in a totally different way when it may be completely unwarranted. Paul, ironically, in this letter, Paul is going to talk about his confidence in this church. He's going to talk about how he's been boasting about the Corinthians all over the regions where he's traveled. Paul's been doing that when in this letter he acknowledges they may not be doing as well as he thinks they are. But Paul is trying to believe all things and hope all things in the church. Whereas the Corinthians are thinking bad things about Paul when he's been nothing but good to them, when he's been working the hardest to help them grow in their faith, when he's making decisions behind the scenes that are really for their benefit and out of his love for them, are we more like Paul? Are we more like the Corinthians? We just so easily have these thoughts against people that, again, have no real basis. 
And I think another mark of maturity here, in verse 20 through 24, Paul's willing to make hard decisions that the Corinthians obviously took the wrong way, that are for their benefit, to equip, in verse 24, their joy and their spiritual development. And again, he says, you're standing firm in your faith. Now, he made a hard decision not going to Corinth. They misunderstood that. But in chapter 2, he'll mention he wrote them a hard letter. So trying to equip joy doesn't just mean that I'm always (laughs) throwing flowers over you, you know, and that if I'm going to say something hard, it's like a pillow fight, you know. Sometimes hard things got to be said. (laughs) Sometimes difficult decisions need to be made. But what we're going to see is the Corinthians had problems they needed to work out without Paul constantly having to intervene and do it for them. They had to learn to take care of their own problems without always depending on Paul to step in and clean it up and do it for them. And that was so important, Paul was willing to delay his visit to give them more time to work out things. It is a sad situation. When an evangelist moves away from a local church, the church falls apart. And they divide? And the brethren don't know what to do? And they get at odds with each other quickly? You know, that's the problem Paul is addressing. You know, what we're trying to do is trying to equip each other to know how to work through problems doctrinally and relationally. You know, and if Eva and I, you know, we're planning on staying here, by the way, but if Eva and I ever moved away and the church here just fell apart spiritually, I don't mean numerically, people can move away, it's fine. But if even I moved away and people just started getting at each other, and then doctrinally things just quickly went in a different direction, that means something's been going really wrong. Long before there was that person who moved, it means that person was being depended on way too much, and things were only going okay because that specific person was there. Paul was trying to avoid that. So in verse 23 through 24, that's why he emphasizes, I'm not lording it over your faith in making these decisions. I am trying to work with you so that you are making better decisions, so that you're being pushed even to have more wisdom with how to deal with real problems. Each of us has to learn that. You know, you cannot get by spiritually just because someone else is here carrying your weight. You know, you cannot get by just because someone else always gives you the answer to a problem. You've got to learn how to study your Bible. You've got to learn how to work out problems. You need to learn how to teach, etc., etc. You know, the reality is, again, this requires an effort on all our parts. If we're going to help each other mature, mature in Christ individually, not just get by with what we do at assemblies, if we're really going to equip each other, that takes pains. That takes a lot of prayer. That takes a lot of love for people. It means you have to lose sleep, time, energy, emotions. But that's what it takes to get into people's problems. You know, and this isn't just Paul visiting assemblies and doing assembly things. You want to help someone grow and make better decisions spiritually? You need to start spending time with people. You're going to have to go to lunch with someone, get breakfast with someone, spend a Saturday with someone. People don't magically change because they heard a sermon one time, and all of a sudden now the, the switch is flipped. People need work. They need time. They need effort. That's how people grow, and Paul knew that. And Paul's not put off or overwhelmed by the fact that the church at Corinth is still dealing with some really fundamental problems. He pushes further, and he works even harder to equip them. We've got to be invested in each other. 
And again, we can't expect that just because we go to the Bible class and we hear a sermon on that subject, that the problem is solved. It takes more than that. It's going to require more work and more prayer than that to help equip each other to be more personally willing to work through difficulties. So that's where we'll end the lesson. I appreciate your patience, uh, kind of entering into the letter, doing an overview and chapter one at the same time. But I, I hope this letter, again, just as what I just mentioned, equips us personally to be able to grow in our faith and mature in very needed ways that help us all grow together in our faith. And if you'll pray with me, we'll say a prayer for these things, and then we'll have our invitation song. Pray with me.